are listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's reading is an extended passage from Revelation, all of chapters 15 and 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits 
performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Here ends the word of the Lord. Well, we're making our way through the very complex book of Revelation, and so if you're relatively new with us, let me sort of recap uh, where we've been and what's going on in this book. It's common for people to think of the book of Revelation as sort of a textbook of what's going to happen at the end of time, and that is not at all what Revelation is. Rather, as we've seen, uh, Revelation, Revelation is a vision of the future that's intended to shape our living in the present. It is, as it were, God telling us the end of the story so that we understand how we ought to live in the middle of the story. Uh, one of the commentators who writes a commentary on Revelation, Greg Beale, says that Revelation is a theological psychology for the church. In other words, it's, it's intended to help us understand how ought we to think, how ought we to understand reality, how ought we to see the world and, and think about it and live in light of what is actually true and what's going on underneath the fabric of reality and what the great sovereign plan of God for all of history really is. And so as we've made our way through Revelation, we've noticed that literarily there's a few things that you have to pay attention to to make sense of this book. And we summarized it with sort of a diagram that we used a few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago. And, and the diagram shows, number one, there's recapitulation. There's sort of a, a, a returning through various cycles. In other words, this book is not laid out chronologically. It is a repetition of various scenes again and again. But as that repetition goes on, there is a progression. So we are moving through time and history. There's also an escalation. Things get more pronounced. God's anger towards sin gets more pronounced. The judgment God's bringing on the earth gets more pronounced as we go through the book. And so we come today to chapters 15 and 16, which as you just heard, are about these seven bowls that are poured out on the earth. And so if you've been around for a few weeks, you should remember, okay, yeah, we talked about seven seals earlier on. Then there were seven trumpets. Now we have seven bowls. And so, okay, yeah, this is a familiar pattern. You should be beginning to feel uh, a sense of familiarity with this pattern of sevens that we see in Revelation. Uh, what we see, though, in chapter 15 and 16 is consistent with that progression and that escalation we've now arrived at sort of the true end, the sort of consummation of God's purposes in history and of God's judgment on sin. 
So in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 15, it tells us, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. All right, so this is telling you, okay, now, so now we've reached the end, the consummation, the summing up of all things, the final sort of day of God's wrath and judgment. So this morning, we're going to talk about the wrath of God, which I assume uh, isn't the most happy subject that we could possibly talk about. Uh, I think, however, it's one of the most important sermons I could possibly preach. And the fact is, simply, because no one talks about it, especially in the culture in which we live and the churches that are present in our culture. Chances are that on your way here this morning, you did not drive by any churches and see on the marquee, God's boot coming toward your head, join us at nine. You know, it's just, it's not church growth material, all right? But here's the reality. The Bible talks about the wrath, the anger, the fury of God more than it talks about his love, his tenderness, and his kindness. And so if we are going to be faithful to the Bible, if we are going to be faithful to the God who is and who is shown to us in the Bible, then we have to talk about God's anger toward sin, God's wrath. In addition, this is a very prominent theme in the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is giving us a foretaste of the end, the consummation, the final judgment. And so we see God's anger, God's wrath climatically coming to a head and being poured out on the earth. And that's exactly what we see in chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation. So uh, here's, here's the big idea behind God's wrath. God gets angry. All right? Now, I just need to say that because some of you have been taught that all anger is bad. That all anger is sinful. And perhaps in your house growing up, all anger was sinful. All right? Perhaps in your soul, all anger is sinful. Most human anger is tainted and corrupted by sin. But God's anger is not sinful. God's anger is holy. And it's holy in two ways. First of all, God's anger is holy in its cause. Because what causes God to become angry is sin, wickedness, injustice, idolatry, rebellion. Uh, anger, wrath, is the other side of the coin of love. Right? This is true in human experience as well. If I tell you I love my kids but I don't get angry toward people who would try to hurt my kids, then you have to question, well, what does that love mean then? If love never is aroused to anger by its fierceness, then the question is, is it really love? Because God is loving, the flip side of his love is that he gets angry with sin, which distorts his image, which corrupts and works against his glory, and which defaces humanity and the earth in which we live. And so God's anger is holy in its cause. He is aroused to anger because of his love, because of his justice, because of his holiness. God's anger is also holy in its expression and how it is manifested. Okay, God's anger is not vindictive. It is not unpredictable, uncontrollable. Rather, it is measured and holy and good. In the Bible, God's wrath, God's anger is often referred to using these sort of liquid metaphors as something that is poured out. 
You heard this in the reading in Revelation 15 and 16. Uh, Likewise, in the book of Jeremiah, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause the nations to whom I send you to drink it. In Lamentations 4, we read, the Lord has poured out his fierce anger. Hosea 5, on the princes of Judah, I will pour out my wrath like Water. So this idea of God's wrath as something that is poured out is very common in Scripture. And here's why. Because as God reveals His nature and character to us in the Bible, He says from His own mouth that He is slow to anger and abounding in love. God has a very long fuse. God is patient. Slow to anger. But think about How much sin, how much wickedness is present on the earth every day in every culture for all of time and history? Think about the sin that's present in your own heart, in your own family, in your own neighborhood, and then multiply that by the numbers of families and neighborhoods and cities that are on the earth throughout all of time. That's a lot of sin and rebellion and wickedness. None of that escapes God's notice. None of that goes unaccounted for. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but rather all things are laid bare before God's eyes. From the smallest white lie to the most heinous and evil crime, God is taking note of it all. God is accounting for it all. And his wrath, his anger toward wickedness and sin is being stored up. And one day it will be poured out on unrepentant sinners. And that's what we see in Revelation 15 and 16. So so God is patient, but God stores up wrath. God does not overlook sin. He does not just ignore the evil, the injustice, the wickedness that takes place on the earth. He stores it all up. It's being accounted for, and it's going to be let loose on the earth. And so the book of Romans speaks a warning to all of us that that captures this metaphor of God's wrath as something that's being stored up. Listen to Romans 2, verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. See, some of you have the impression that you're getting away with sin, because there's no immediate consequences, right? Some of you are living in sexual immorality right now, and God hasn't struck you dead. Some of you are harboring bitterness and resentment and anger in your hearts, and God hasn't judged you. There's been no immediate consequence for that. Some of you are in the grip of gossip and slander. Some of you are harboring pride and selfishness in your hearts. And there's no immediate consequence for that. And so you're under the impression that, well, look, all this stuff about a God who judges and about sin, that's all sort of theological. It's, it's, it's myth. It's legend. There is no such thing. You think that you're getting away with whatever it is that you're doing. The Bible is very clear. You're not getting away with it. God is storing up wrath. 
You're charging up debt to your account in the eyes of God. It's not going unnoticed. It's not going unaccounted for. You're not getting away with it. You're just storing up wrath for yourself. And what we see in Revelation 15 and 16 is that the cup, the bowl of God's wrath is finally full and it is poured out on all the unrighteousness, all the ungodliness, all the wickedness that's on the earth. What I want to draw your attention to this morning in these chapters in Revelation is not the mere fact that God gets angry with sin and that we see His wrath being expressed. What I want to draw your attention to is the response of the saints and the angels in heaven to this final day of God's justice. Look with me in Revelation chapter 15 at verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Likewise, look across the page at chapter 16 and verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you. O Holy One, who is and who was, for You brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are Your judgments. What we see in these chapters in Revelation are the saints the angels, the court of God in heaven, rejoicing in, worshiping God for His justice, for the rightness and the trueness of His anger and His retribution toward sin. See, what I want you to see is this. The proper response to God's wrath for a Christian is worship. That's what you ought to feel rising up in your heart as you, as you think about, as you read about the wrath of God. Worship. And so I just want to dwell there on that fact this morning because I don't think that's the reality for many of us. I don't think that's how we deal with the wrath of God. It's much more common that we struggle that we have a hard time with, that we have doubts and questions about the anger of God, then that we find it a cause for worship. And so I want you to see, to the extent that that's true, our response is not a godly response. The saints and the angels in heaven don't question and doubt and wrestle with the justice of God. They worship God for it. 
And so what I want to try to do this morning is to awaken you to the beauty and the majesty of the fact that God judges sin. What I want is for you to walk out of here rejoicing that God is a God of love, whose love dictates that He gets angry towards sin and that He pours out His anger, that at the end, everything will be brought to justice perfectly. And so because I think that is a challenging task, especially in the culture that we live in, I want to ask that you would pause and just let me pray for us again. So let's pray together. It is true, God, that as we think about wrath, anger, judgment towards sin, that to us does not come as good news. We tend to receive that with skepticism, with questions, with doubt, with fear, instead of in joy and worship. And so I just want to acknowledge that. And I want to pray this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would recalibrate our hearts. It would help us see why your justice is cause for great rejoicing. Why it is a manifestation of your goodness and holiness. And so God, would you take our sinful, idolatrous presuppositions, would you set them aside? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, give us insight into your word and into your truth? that we might join the saints and the angels in heaven in giving you praise as your righteous acts are revealed, as your justice is made known in the book of Revelation. We pray this so we might glorify you more fully here on earth. Amen. Two weeks ago today, Osama bin Laden was killed by a team of American special forces. And I think that for most of us, though, though that's a complex situation and our responses are complex, I think that for most of us there was a sense of relief, a sense of peace, perhaps even, dare I say, a sense of joy in the death of bin Laden. Because what happened on 9-11 was deeply tragic and it it brought up in us this longing for justice that had been unresolved. Now, that's imperfect justice, right? That's sinners executing imperfect justice on other sinners, and so there's certainly, it's not a perfect situation. It doesn't solve the problem of terrorism in the world. It doesn't, at the end of the day, make us more safe than we were yesterday. But still, there's something in us that looks at that and feels some sense of resolution. I bring up that example to point out that it is possible for you to feel joy in the execution of justice when the heinousness of crime is clear and when the need for justice is clear. It's possible to feel joy in the execution of justice. So I think we need to ask the question, why then do we struggle to feel joy in the execution of God's justice. If it is possible for us to rejoice that justice has been done, why do we struggle with God's wrath, with God's justice being poured out at the end of time? I think the answer is simply this. Because we fear people 
more than we fear God. We value people more than we value God. We love the glory of humanity more than we love the glory of God. Uh, Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he, that is Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying here is all of the ethics of the Bible, all of the Old Testament law, all of the the truth proclaimed by the prophets is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, these two commands are not separable. They are a sense, essentially two sides of the same coin. But what I want you to see is, though they are not separable, they are sequential. Love for our neighbor is supposed to flow out of love for God. It is loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind that then enables and empowers us to love our neighbor as ourself. It is love for God that gives love of neighbor its significance and its weightiness and its God-glorifying focus and end. And see, I think our problems with God's wrath and God's anger come because we get this upside down. We love our neighbor, we just don't love God, first and foremost. Our neighbors, our friends, our fellow humans have become ultimate rather than God. People have become our ultimate criteria, our ultimate object of affection and value and worship rather than God. And so we've gotten the great commandment backwards, and as a result, we can't love the Lord our God the way we're meant to, nor can we love our neighbor the way we're meant to. Well, let me give you the example of, of how this, how, why we have this backwards, how this sounds in your mind. It sounds like this question. Why would a good God send people to hell? Many of you have wrestled with that question. Many of you have had that dialogue with friends and family, but I want you to notice what's implicit in the way the question is phrased. Good and hell. Opposite categories. In other words, hell is not good. And therefore, if God is good, He would not send people to hell. But do you see, what's my standard in making that distinction? Why is, who is hell not good for? It's not good for people. Right? It's not good for the people who end up there. But see, it's a very different thing to say, hell is not good for people, 
and to say hell is not good. See, people, human beings, have become the measure, the standard by which I judge what is good and what isn't good. In that question assumes, the way that question is phrased, assumes that my standard of what is good has to do with what is good for human beings. Therefore, humanity has become ultimate, not God. So if God would send people to hell, then God must not be good. But listen to me. If God is ultimate, which He is, then that whole question gets flipped upside down. Right? The question becomes, how can a good, holy, just God spare anyone from hell? It's heaven that doesn't make sense if God is ultimate. You follow? The only reason hell doesn't make sense is because people are ultimate. As soon as we put God in his proper place as the holy, just ruler of all the universe, then what doesn't make sense is how can God spare anybody from his wrath and his anger and his justice? So the reason most of us have trouble with the wrath of God is because we have made humanity ultimate in our thinking. And the ironic thing about that is it it actually keeps us from loving people. And here's why. Because if I value you, if I value you more highly than I value God, then I won't say hard things to you. Right? I won't challenge you. I won't confront you. I won't say things you might need to hear but don't want to hear. Why? Because I risk offending you. Because you might not like me. Because it might put a rift in our relationship. The, The classic case of this, right? is the codependent people who hang out with addicts, right? The most loving thing you can say to an addict is, hey, your behavior is destructive and it needs to change, right? But to the extent that I fear that person or want them to like me and don't say that, am I really loving them? No, I'm empowering their sinful, destructive behavior. It's easy to see in that context. What I want you to see is we do that all the time with people. Right? So the fact that people are ultimate keeps me from actually loving you because I will not risk anything. I will not risk you being unhappy with me. I will not risk having to say things you might not want to hear. I won't risk telling you hard things you need to know about reality. But see, if I value God most, then I'm free to truly love you. I don't need or fear or value most highly your approval. I value most highly God and his approval, and so I'm free to just love you and seek your good. Which means, I'll care about you, I'll love you, I'll serve you, and I'll tell you the hard things that you need to hear about God, and about heaven and hell, and about sin, and about judgment. See, see the truth is, God is angry with your sin. That's truth that you need to know and hear, and it's true of every one of us in this room. God is angry with your sin. You have offended God with your sin. That is the truth. That's the hard, weighty reality that you need to hear and know. And there's only one thing you can do, and that is to repent. You can repent. You must repent. A repentance is simply this. 
It means I'm walking in the direction of sin and foolishness and selfishness. And I turn around and I walk in the other direction toward Jesus and toward truth and toward righteousness. It's a change of direction, a change of disposition, a change of orientation away from my sin and toward the Lord Jesus. Because see, Jesus is the only one who can spare you from the wrath of God. Listen to how the Bible talks about this. Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul says this, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So who should repent? All people everywhere. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. That's the day that Revelation 15 and 16 is talking about. God has set a day in which there will be no more opportunity to repent. God will judge the world in righteousness. And so before that day comes, all people everywhere should repent. John chapter 3 says it this way. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God remains on him. So see, there are two options. Right now, the wrath of God abides on you because of your sin. Jesus came to die on the cross, to be raised from death, in order to bear the wrath of God and have the wrath that you deserve abide on Him so that it no longer abides on you. Those are your two options. Either the wrath of God remains on you or it is put on Jesus. John 3 says, unless you believe, obey, trust in, worship the Lord Jesus, the wrath of God remains on you. See, the good news is Jesus' invitation is inclusive. It is public. Jesus invites anyone Everyone, everywhere to repent, to turn from sin, to worship Him, to trust in Him. Right up until the very end, God is inviting, He is beckoning people to repent. I mean, look at in, in Revelation 15, right? As these bowls are being poured out, Revelation 16, verse 9, people were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God. They did not repent and give Him glory. Even as his wrath is being poured out, there's still opportunity to repent. And it says, but people didn't repent and give him glory. See, God's patience, God's kindness is such that he has not restricted his offer of salvation in Jesus to any one race, to any one culture, to any one people, to any one social class or group or subgroup, but it is made public and available to any and all who will trust in the Lord Jesus. And see, when you turn from sin and to Jesus, when you stop fearing people and seeing people as ultimate, and when you see God and His glory as ultimate, when you take refuge in Jesus from the wrath of God, here's what happens. God gives you a new heart. God promises, I will put a new spirit within you. There's a whole new disposition that God gives you so that you truly can love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you can love your neighbor as yourself. This is made possible by the gospel. And so because you love God and long to honor Him, and because you love people and you long to see them love God because He is ultimate, you're able to love and serve everyone, no strings attached. 
you're also able to proclaim compassionately and passionately the truth that all people everywhere need to repent and turn to Jesus. It's, it's the new heart, the new disposition, the new spirit that God gives you through repentance and faith that causes you then to rejoice in His justice, in His judgment, in His anger towards sin. See, if, if you've been changed by the gospel, if you've turned from sin and you've embraced the Lord Jesus and begun to worship Him, then you worship God for His wrath because it displays the beauty and the goodness of the Lord Jesus. You don't worship God for His wrath because you want anyone to experience His wrath, but rather because His anger towards sin magnifies and points to and glorifies the beauty of what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's why the saints in Revelation 15 are worshiping. Perhaps the most famous, most well-known, most honored theologian and philosopher in American history is Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is also a man who spoke courageously and passionately and biblically about the wrath of God, about hell, about God's anger, God's judgment, God's justice. And so as we close this morning, I I want to read you some of Edwards' language so that you can help see how it is that God's anger and God's justice towards sin magnifies and glorifies the beauty of the Lord Jesus. So that you can see the connection that because God is angry with sin, the work that Jesus did is that much more beautiful and glorious. I can't do better than Edwards has already done in explaining this. This is from a sermon he wrote called The End of the Wicked, Contemplated by the Righteous. His text was out of the book of Revelation. It was one of these texts like the one we have in chapter 15 and 16 where the angels and saints are worshiping God for the display of His justice. Listen carefully to Jonathan Edwards. The just damnation of the wicked will be an occasion of rejoicing to the saints in glory. How's that for a thesis statement? The just damnation of the wicked will be an occasion of rejoicing to the saints in glory. That's a hard thesis to prove. Right? Because Edwards acknowledges all of us right now feel like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want anyone to experience God's wrath, God's judgment. Right? But he says, yeah, yeah, now that's good. But, but in heaven, that won't be the case. Listen. It will not be because they delight in seeing the misery of others. Rather, they will greatly value the glory of God and will exceedingly delight in seeing Him glorified. They will greatly rejoice to see justice take place, to see that all the sin and wickedness that have been committed in the world is remembered of God and has its due punishment. The sight of this strict And immutable justice of God will render him adorable in their eyes. To see the majesty and greatness and terribleness of God appearing in the destruction of his enemies will cause the saints to rejoice. And when they shall see how great and terrible a being God is, how they will prize his favor. 
How they will rejoice that they are objects of His love. How they will praise Him the more joyfully that He should choose them to be His children and to live in the enjoyment of Him. When they shall see the dreadful miseries of the damned and consider that they deserved the same misery and that it was sovereign grace and nothing else which made them to differ from the damned. That God from all eternity was pleased to set His love on them. That Christ hath laid down His life for them and hath made them thus gloriously happy forever. Oh, how they will admire that dying love of Christ, which has redeemed them from so great a misery and purchased for them so great happiness and has so distinguished them from others of their fellow creatures. How joyfully they sing to God and the Lamb when they behold this. That is what's happening in Revelation 15 and 16. The saints, God's people, are worshiping Him because in the recognition of His anger and His wrath and His judgment towards sin, they see all the more clearly the beauty and the glory of what Jesus did on the cross to deliver His people from God's wrath. It is the anger of God, the justice of God towards sin that makes Jesus' death beautiful. And listen to me, if you don't have a weighty and biblical sense of the anger of God, you will not value what Jesus did on the cross. It won't matter to you. You will treasure Jesus as your Savior that makes your life better and frees you from sort of psychological, you know, loneliness or the effects of sin in your life. But you won't treasure Him deeply and profoundly as the one who has taken the wrath of God that you deserve and has absorbed it all on the cross in his death so that you are freed from it, so that you are ushered into God's glorious presence, so that the weight and and seriousness and significance of God's anger toward you has been taken away. Listen, if, if you're a worshiper of Jesus here this morning, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the judgment of God should be sweet to you. Because that's what you've been spared from. That's what you've been delivered from by the work Jesus did. And so all that Jesus did for you ought to be sweet and beautiful and glorious. If you're not a worshiper of Jesus here this morning, I want you to see this is why you're here. That you're here so that you can hear and know and understand in a culture that tells you, listen, it's all about your self-esteem. Just think positively about yourself. Believe the best about who you are. Live up to your potential. You need to hear the clear words of Scripture that you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's righteous judgment. You need to understand sin is a big deal. You don't get to compare yourself to the person down the street and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that girl. Therefore, I have things pretty well together. The Bible is clear. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's judgment. But the good news is this. God invites, beckons, welcomes all people everywhere to repent, to turn to Him, to trust Him, to worship Jesus and be delivered from His wrath. 
This is the good news of the gospel. So it's not an accident that you're here this morning. If you're not a worshiper of Jesus, you need to know and feel and see and sense the beauty and the glory of the proclamation of the gospel that though you deserve God's wrath, Jesus welcomes and invites you to take refuge in him, to turn to him, to worship him. Now is the day of salvation. That There will come a day when God's wrath is poured out, when there's no opportunity left to repent. But until that day comes, Jesus beckons and invites and welcomes you to turn to Him. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, it is my hope and my prayer this morning that my friends here in this room who are worshipers of You would feel such a deeper and fuller and greater sense of worship this morning as they consider just what it is that you have saved us from. What it is that you endured on the cross. That the bowls, the cup of God's wrath was handed to you on the cross when you died in our place for our sins. And I pray that our worship of you and our love for you And our delight in you would be so much greater and so much fuller as we consider that. And likewise, Jesus, for my friends here this morning who are not yet worshipers of you, who have not yet turned from sin and selfishness and embraced the Lord Jesus and begun walking as disciples of you, I pray this morning that you would awaken them from the slumber that our culture keeps us in. God, awaken them to the realities of judgment and sin God help them see that Jesus with arms wide open beckons and invites them to come to turn to him in faith would you by your grace make this the day of their salvation the day that they see clearly the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and come in faith and repentance and worship to you so that we might glorify you and manifest your glory here on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.